It took a few weeks of email ping pong to finally get hold of Rob Gray, professor at Arizona State University. He is from Caledon, Ontario, received his master's and PhD from York University. And here's the discussion Dean Holden and I recently had with him about movement. I'm welcoming uh, Rob Gray, Professor Rob Gray, from Arizona State University onto the show today. And uh, with uh, my guest host, Dean Holden, and as indicated online and uh, in a previous show that Dean and I talked about, Rob has written a book called How We Learn to Move, a revolution in the way we coach and practice sports skills. Rob, welcome to Grassroots. And is the is the book a bestseller yet? <laughs> um, it was briefly <laughs> for a while. Uh, it, it, it's on Amazon, so it kind of like depends what category. If you really pick a niche category, you could make it one. But um, yeah, it's doing well. But yeah, it was up there for a while, and then it got pushed off um, by by lots of other sports coaching books. If we were making this into a television show, and you wanted the elevator pitch. So I'm the executive producer and I want the elevator pitch. You're going up to the 53rd floor of our building. And on the way up, you're going to give me the elevator pitch of why this book is essential reading for coaches. What would you say? Yeah, I think uh, as we were talking about before, I think a lot of coaches are using a lot of these ideas in the book already. Um, I think it just helps them, helps give some sort of theoretical background. It attaches some some research and kind of a framework to build on it and expand on what you're doing. And uh, for the people that aren't doing it, I think it's just a very different way of looking at uh, how we acquire skills like playing hockey. And I think it challenges some things that we haven't really, we just do without thinking about it. The idea of repetition, the idea that to get good at something, we have to repeat the same thing over and over and over until we get it, become automatic. It's kind of a just an assumption we make in almost any skill we learn. And there's a lot of new research and ideas coming out that are challenging that. And so it's get, a lot of it, you know, a lot of what I try to do, I find as a consultant, is just get people asking why. Why are we doing this practice drill? Um, is it because we just always did it that way? Um, so it, it's getting, I, I think it's gets people to think about uh, being more purposeful about what they're doing in coaching. Now you're from the Toronto area, you're from Caledon and you grew up playing hockey and now you're down in Arizona where there's not a whole lot of hockey there. <laughs> no. The NHL team is even going to be on a, on your university rink, but you know what the, tra- the traditions are like in, in hockey, in minor hockey. And you're dealing, you're not dealing with hockey down there. You're dealing with, with baseball and soccer. What are you finding from the baseball and soccer coaches and coaches of other sports that you're consulting with on how to change their approaches? Yeah, that's a great question. I find um, a lot of coaches are very open to the ideas. They kind of, you know, that we need things like we need to make uh, practice more game-like where players are making decisions and much more things are going on, variability. I think a lot of coaches are open to that. Um, it varies in a bit of degree to uh, how they can get there, right? How they can add these kind of ideas to the practice. Some coaches go all in. Some want to hang on to the idea, oh, I got to give you the fundamentals first. So I got to teach you how to dribble before I let you play soccer or teach you how to stick handle before you can play hockey. Um so there, there's some challenges with that. Also, I think you were alluding to this a bit, Richard, that there's a challenge a bit from the, the, the perspective of, you know, sometimes with parents 
they like this kind of new way of coaching. You're often you you're not as talking as much, instructing as much. Things are a little less ordered with cones and lines, right? So sometimes when parents look at it, they're like, "What am I paying you for? You're just standing around." Right? There's more. It's kind of a I talk about it in the book. It's a shift from the coach as an instructor. Here I have all the answers. Come get them. To the coach is more of a designer and a guide. I'm going to design practice to help you find out how to do it. So it's a very, it's a very big shift. Yeah. The, the expression that I was provided some years ago was better to be the guide on the side than the sage on the stage. Mm -hmm. And your book alludes to, well, it doesn't allude to it. It pretty much states it. And you, 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 you talk about the parents and maybe the governing bodies of local sports organizations. Uh, Are they being resistant to the to a coach taking taking on these approaches or just a is it a sufficient for a coach to do it from time to time yeah that's a good question i think in some cases some are really some organizations are really buying into this idea um you know particularly right uh, something i talk about in the book is not only on the performance side there's also a lot of growing body of research suggests that helps reduce injury Right. And it helps keep get kids more into the sport and, and things like that. So, yeah. So I think there's a lot of things. Um, there's, there is some resistance for kind of moving away from tradition. Um, the other thing is challenging to a bit challenging to assess and measure when you're going to be more game like. Right. It's very easy to take a stopwatch and measure how fast someone can stick handle around a set of cones. I got a number. You know, I can measure how, how short it gets. So to move away from those kind of simple ways of assessing and, and, and things like that is, is difficult as well. So, but in general, it varies across the sport, different sports, but I think there's a bigger movement overall of, of accepting the idea that we can apply science to skill acquisition, right? We can be more scientific about it and do some different things to help people learn for sure. When, when we look at the, tr- the tradition in hockey, and again, you're very familiar with it because you grew up with skates on your feet. The Hockey Canada Skills Pyramid, which has been around, oh, I'm guessing 35 or 40 years, which has along the bottom, you have to teach these certain skills, skating, puck handling, passing, shooting, etc. And then you go up to tactics, individual tactics, and then you go up the pyramid to the next level and so on. And the assumption has always been that you must teach or provide these skill foundations first. So that's been translated by coaches and by the governing bodies across the country into meaning you have to do drills to teach the skills. And as one friend of mine who thinks that the whole teaching games for understanding movement is is a crock, he says, well, soccer and all these other invasions type sports, you're on your feet. Hockey, you have to be able to skate. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm assuming you can understand where they're coming from when you hear that kind of uh, pushback. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, and I, I agree to a certain degree. I, the, the big thing that I, you know, skate, I put, uh, you know, it's dribbling around cones and soccer too, all these kind of things. These are functional skills, right? I, I, I don't just skate, like go weaving around for fun, right? I go left to get around someone. And so the key thing that I, yes, we need those skills. And there's a bunch of research, mostly in soccer, showing that they do come out 
in the game's environment if you do it the right way. Um, you don't have to teach them first and then let kids play. Um, so, but I, I think the, the fundamental flaw is that I can teach you how to pass in an environment where you have to make no decisions, for example. I tell you where to pass the puck. Every, we do these line drills. And then you're going to somehow be able to plug that in and be a great playmaker in hockey. You haven't learned how to pick up information from your environment that tells you where to pass and when, right? Um, so I would rather do all those things together, right? And so, yeah, I, I, I kind of get the resistance to that. This this is fundamentals, but I think um, we can get there in a different way, I think for sure. Getting there in a different way doesn't necessarily mean, I'm trying to play the devil's advocate here. Mm-hmm, no, for sure. But, but does getting there in a different way mean getting there in a better way? And that's that's the pushback that I would hear or have heard. Well, that's very interesting. Let's let the game teach the game, which is one of the topics we're presenting on that coaching conference in Whitby, June 4th, 5th. But is it a better way? Um, you know, there's a growing body of research that seems, I don't know, there's not really much hockey directly, but there's in other sports, there's growing body of research that suggests it results in more kind of adaptable athletes. It's sometimes it's slower, right? It takes a little bit longer to get there, but it develops. Yeah. As I said, uh, you know, there's a great series of studies on soccer that show training this way actually reduces the markers for ACL injury. Right. So there's a lot, uh, it makes athletes more creative. There's a study that, so in the study I mentioned, they measured, they did a change of direction test before and after training. And they trained three different groups, a traditional way, a very more games variable. And and then they measured the ACL markers after, and they were lower in the group because they learned to move in more different ways. (laughs) When When I teach you one way to skate, I'm putting a lot of pressure on the same joints, same tendons every time rather than letting you move more variably. So that that's kind of, then there's also studies showing athletes are more creative. Like every sport, team sport, we cry that, complain that athletes are not good decision makers, can't create op- scoring opportunities. When do they ever get a chance to do that in practice, to learn that, right? Um, so, so yeah, there is a growing, I kind of have a, on my website, I have a, a list of studies that have directly compared kind of the fundamentals approach to these other kind of other approaches. And um, they're not always better, but there's kind of a good, good body of it for sure. One of the things that, that gets under my skin a little bit is that whenever there's a conversation about training methods, practice methods, teaching methods, that we tend to resort to what the pros did or what the better players do in whatever sport, whether it's soccer, baseball, hockey. And, there's a on page 20 of your book, there's a I'm not going to read it, but there's a long uh, quote here from Rafael Nadal mm-hmm. about the millions of shots that he has hit over the years and how every shot in every situation is completely different in an individual sport. In hockey, of course, as you well know, every situation is completely different. Right. How do we convince people that it's always different, but the difference is in hockey, you have to be able to skate. So when I take videos of kids, as I just did during their tryouts in April, and saw how many of the kids in our organization cannot do, nor do they try, a two-foot stop, they use a snowplow, particularly the younger ones. You remember what a snowplow stop is. Mm-hmm. I know you're in the desert, but mm-hmm. snowplow no, stops. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
And they'll resort to a snowplow stop because they've never learned or have never been shown uh, or taught properly how to do a proper two-foot stop. So they are less efficient. Okay. Um, yeah. No, then, you know, what I do in, in that situation, I counter similar things in tennis and other sports, is create, you know, what we come is we use kind of the constraint sled approach. Um, we create a cast situation where you need to be able to, you can't stop with two feet, right? We somehow constrain the task where what you're doing is not going to be working. Um, so we still, instead of pulling it out and saying, put your foot here and your foot there, we create uh, a practice design that encourages you to do it this different way. That's, that's kind of the, the, the approach we use, you know, um, you know, I, you know, and I, I totally understand that. I, I'm sure you, you know, I, I could bring out my story that I don't remember skating lines or doing power skating in my backyard before I started playing hockey. Right. We just start playing hockey. Right. Um, certainly though, the way that I like to do it is get people into the game. And it doesn't mean as a coach, you, like you said, you can't come in and say, that's not going to work. Right. It doesn't mean that everything, anything goes. So, you know, I, I, like in tennis, what I'll do is I let kids start playing and then you notice that a kid is hitting the tennis ball way behind them and they're using a really flat stroke. That's not a good way to play tennis. Right. So we'll pull them out and use kind of some cueing and instruction to kind of get that, that, that movement we want rather than assuming we have to start with, okay, do a swing like this, <laughs> right. Um, rather than, so, so it, it still can, you can still kind of, as a coach to, you know, push people away from movement patterns you don't like, encourage other ones. It's just kind of a different way of doing it. Can we just go back to your um, CLA, constraints led mm -hmm. approach, mm -hmm. as you refer to it in the book and as you've just mentioned? How do you see that playing out in hockey? And I would never ask this of anybody else mm -hmm. in the United States who's never put on skates, but you have. So mm -hmm. you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So there's a couple, there's some few, you know, the most common one that gets used in team sports is um, in soccer and hockey is small sided games, right? So instead of playing a full uh, five on five, we can reduce the number of players, reduce the eye size of the playing area. Um, you know, the, um, what that does is you have to make quicker decisions. You can't stay away from contact, right? People around you. So we're adding new constraints that are pushing you to different things. Um, I have an example. I, I was just talking to uh, someone about goaltending. So one of the best uh, coaching sessions I ever had when I was a hockey goaltender was I, when my coach said, what I want you to do in this next section. So he had a whole bunch of shooters lined up around me. And he said, what I want you to do is you're not allowed to move your limbs or your stick at all. What I want you to do is just cut down the angles on the shooters. So go out and you can't try to stop it at all. And what he's, what he was trying to show me is that very few people scored right on me. If I properly cut down the angles. So that's a constraint. He's taking, I'm taking away something. That's why we call it a constraint. It's a weird word, right? You think constraining is not what you, but we're taking something away. So I, I had to practice really focusing on getting the angles right and getting out and cutting them down because I couldn't move. That was all I had. Um, so constraining is like, is taking something away to encourage athletes to do something else, whether it's using different equipment, um, changing the rules, like in hockey, if I really wanted to get my team to forecheck, well, I could add a rule in practice. If you score after a, a turnover, it's two points, two, two versus one the regular way. 
So that kind of stuff, right? You're you're changing the the, the practice to kind of encourage different kind of uh, behaviors in the athletes. I have a book on my shelf from a long time ago, 1960, a guy named Lloyd Percival. I don't know if you know the name, who was a hockey a Toronto guy, a researcher, and wrote a book called The Hockey Handbook. In it, there are very few drills, but there are diagrams of blocks of wood that they used where there'd be a hole in the middle of the block of wood, you have to pass the puck through the hole in the mm-hmm. wood, you know, a fairly large hole, to get the puck somewhere else and practice going around objects and so forth. So that's been around for 60 plus years. Mm-hmm. We've now got to the point where, um, and I'm pretty sure you do not own shares in any pylon making company, <laughs> <laughs> nor do I. We have pylons, we have plastic sticks on the ice, we have all kinds of toys to go over, around, through. And the question I always ask the coaches is, has that made a difference mm-hmm. in their, let's say, puck handling or passing it off a chunk of wood and getting it back at some weird angle? What have you found? Um, I think it really, it, it depends on kind of the what the what that equipment is doing. Um you know, just I've seen ones, for example, metal frames that kind of simulate a stick in a so you have to kind of go in and like that's really just a fancy cone, <laughs> right? There's not um, so I don't, you know, whether it it's it's changing the way the person um moves, whether it's giving them information that they'll actually use in a game, I think. So it, it really depends on what kind of change you're making. Um uh, not just any kind of random thing I think will work. You really have to be thoughtful about if I, if I make kids play with an orange ball, like a street hockey ball on the ice, what is that going to do? Right. Um, they're going to have to focus on controlling it better. You know, so you want to think about what are the consequences of these equipment changes, uh, and then see if that leads to the behavior you're looking for. Right. Yeah. Well, the question Um, you posed earlier was the first one you ask is, well, why? Yeah, Why are you exactly. doing this? <laughs> yeah. What do you hope to get out of it? Yeah. <clears throat> and, and like, you know, with passing, right, a, you know, passing through a narrow thing, you know, makes you pass accurately. But passing is about receiving changing <laughs> openings and, you know, you have to know where their opponent, your teammate is. And so I, I prefer more things, that kind of things than kind of static objects on the, on the, on the ice. <laughs> Yeah, there's. I have not yet seen. I'm not as well versed in the research field, obviously, as as you and Dean are. But I don't think I've ever seen anything that deals with research on five, six, seven, eight year olds who are learning a sport at the at the absolute grassroots level, whether it's hockey or anything else, because they they change so quickly. I mean, over a course of three months, kids go from just being able to take a few steps to actually changing direction and going forward to backward if they've never skated before. Yeah, there's there's some. I think more a bit older than that. You're right. Probably is more common. Um, yeah, and it is. It's it's not the ideal thing as a researcher you want because you're right. They're so variable. There's so much individual difference at that age. It's not like all the things we were taught in research methods class. <laughs> like have a homogeneous group of right people. Yeah, it's not the definitely. It's kind of a challenge uh, to understand. But I think there's more and more. Um, kind of looking at youth uh, sports training uh, in some in certain sports for sure. One of the things that um, when I'm teaching coaches or working with coaches is children learn through play, through experiment, through discovery, 
um, that uh, we don't have to drill them, that -hmm. there are better ways for them to learn things. Just watch them on in skateboard parks and watch them playing in the yard at school. There's no structure. There's none. Yeah, for sure. And that, that's one of the things I, when I was talking about the constraints, uh, I mean, you know, I was going to mention kids are naturals at making constraints, right? If the no one's there to play goalie, we turn the net around, we say you have to put it in the top, you know, we come up with these rules to, to balance it out. Yeah. Yeah. There's some great the research in, in soccer, you know, um, looking at, you know, if you compare countries like Brazil, where kids play in the street, different ages, rocky versus the soccer academy where they get perfect everything mm-hmm. um you know that maybe the disadvantage of not having everything perfect is actually an advantage right um you know having all these kind of ad variation games and you know yeah sometimes i i um one of the things i i've seen i've been told many many times is when you coach this way where you you're more games you're more variation you can hear the difference. You can hear the in the, the on the ice. People are louder. They're talking to each other. Yeah. And sometimes I do see that with on soccer, particularly around here. You you hear kids are yelling, laughing, playing fun games, <clears throat> and then practice starts. It's like ball. <laughs> Everything goes down and quiet and regimented. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> Which one of those is is better? Especially for younger kids. Yeah. Have you found in your work with uh, soccer and baseball and other you know, sports that are not hockey. It's hard to imagine there are sports other than hockey that are important. Yes, yeah. But I know I, I had to move here to find that out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah right. That um, there's a certain amount of impatience in, in understanding development among children in sport that we don't experience in the school system. Your child's in grade four. I don't need them to learn Macbeth in grade four. They'll get mm-hmm. to that in grade 10. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's uh, especially parents, right? We want my little Johnny's going to be the next Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> what are you doing to get him there? Um, for sure. And I think, um, you know, and also the, the, the challenge is, you know, in, in education, like we, I think we all know like in education, we're not doing it the ideal way. Like um, we have these kind of assessments of <laughs> multiple choice here. You hear some information, you regurgitate back to me. Now move on. Like you haven't learned how to apply that or use it in any way, integrate it with all the, the, the taxonomy of learn <laughs> knowledge and things like that. Um, Bloom's technology, I guess it's called. Um, so, yeah, I think um, there is a, a definitely an impatience um, at the lower level, I also find interestingly, I find this a lot at the adult level as well. People that want to learn how to in Arizona now, pickleball is huge. I don't know if so it's huge up here too. They all adults, what's the hack you can give me so I get good? <laughs> yeah, well, how do I get good with the one thing you're going to tell me rather than oh, you need to practice? <laughs> right? We want to kind of resist this. You know, the way to get good, something is keep practicing it. We keep denying that fact over what technology can we use? What shortcuts for sure. But yeah, I, I definitely, you see that. Um, and I, I think it's because, you know, people see the, you know, the, the dream of playing at a high level versus, you know, I guess, I guess in school, there's a little bit now with pushing kids to do faster, start doing college courses in high school now, um, things like that. 
there's a little bit of that, but you're right in sport. It's, <laughs> it's different. What, what kinds of things are you getting the most pushback on with respect to the content of the book? And you did a podcast basically about the book um, mm-hmm. some weeks ago. And I actually sent that off to our coaches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have kind of a, I have a podcast I've been doing for a few years and now that kind of goes beyond all these things. Um you know, I, I guess the, the kind of some of the things we talked about that, you know, that moving away from the idea of the fundamentals, um, kind of the, a lot of the challenge, you know, the ideas that you need to kind of instruct people in tactics and game plays and that you can't just learn that uh, from actual play. That needs to, you need to have a coach on a whiteboard and say, you go here, you go here on the power play, Right. Um, that the idea is that you can learn that, or you can also learn that kind of in, in, in the game as the teacher. Um, there's some resistance on that. Um, but in general, I don't, I don't, I think it's, you know, pretty well, um, you know, might be in a bit of an echo chamber, I guess. Um, but I, I think people are accepting a lot of these ideas for sure. The book cover with using the word revolution, that was obviously intentional. <laughs> yes. It's not an accident. Yeah. You actually yeah. wrote those words. Yeah, I did. Yeah. <clears throat> Is this going to be a revolution that's going to take 20 years for us to get the message on how kids need to learn or the way we teach kids how to play sports? Yeah, I hope not. <laughs> but I I um you know, part of the motivation, right? The the opening part of the book I talk about, you know, kids sports where you know, we have kind of this this elite sports model, right? In in PE, the classes are focused on you getting good at, you know, the sport, the technique. Um, if you can't do it, then kids learn, oh, I'm not sporty, I'm uncoordinated. And they they completely go away from any movement-related skills, right? And later in life, not always, but they have health. You know, it's not encouraging being active at all. So... Um, yeah, I hope we move away from this, this kind of model. I think, you know, a lot of the active training methods we do are pretty boring for kids. They have so many other options now. Um, so yeah, I, I hope not. I hope, um, that people are starting to see this. Uh, I think it's being adopted at the higher levels. Um, a lot of these ideas. So hopefully such as where, um, a lot of the professional, the professional teams and stuff I work with in, in baseball are really using these, uh, some of these ideas, you know, there's been a big, uh, general movement away from focus on skill, uh, talent identification, right? So the idea of you, you, you're this, <laughs> we need to find the, the kid when they're really young and to talent, uh, development, the idea that I can get better. I if I'm if I'm a pitcher in baseball and I can throw only 88 miles an hour, I can actually be trained to increase my velocity if I do it the right way. Um, so I'm not set in stone, you know that that you have this kind of talent. You have the, so 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 I see a big movement, a big mo- interest in practice design and using different things and um, sports science. There's a lot, especially the younger kind of coaches coming up. They will. They want all the information on the latest research and not all of it applies, of course, but I think that there's a big change. Um, when but I what, first started, I had to find like the one coach that was willing. Uh, the other thing I find is a lot of more openness to listening to outsiders, right? Um, 
Like it, before, if I didn't play the sport at a high level, they didn't want it. You know, I don't, you don't know anything. <laughs> um, but now there's kind of a, a bigger uh, movement in that direction. Now, soccer is huge here, and it's it's getting huger in the states too. I, I imagine, uh, and that's also a very tradition based sport, isn't it? For sure, yeah. Um, I think you know it's. Uh, the dribbling around cones is always the one that I pick on. That that's been we've been doing that forever. Um, but I think you you know we're seeing some of the the higher level coaches around the world starting to adopt, and they, they've already been using like small sided games has been using soccer for a long time. Yes, right. And your your point about the the hockey equipment and stuff too. It's not we're not I'm not reinventing everything. It's just kind of putting like I said a framework around it. You know. Um, good coaches are a lot uh, the best experimenters ever, right? They do their own research and they figured out what works a long time ago. Um, so yeah, I, I think um, changing some of the traditions is starting to happen. Although there is still, you know, a lot of kind of sticking to the tradition. Has anybody taken you to task on anything in that book that has made you think about? Hmm, I wonder about that. <laughs> um. Yeah, I don't know. I like, hmm. I'm trying to think. Because uh, a book isn't peer reviewed, really. No, no, it's all me. <laughs> yeah. It's all um, you. It's, yeah, I use a lot of research, peer reviewed research in it, I refer to. But yeah, it was kind of just, um, I had a lot of people. The motivation for main motivation was I had a lot of people asking, you know, I hear you talk about constraints and all these ideas, game, teaching in the game. Um, where can I start? And what I wanted to do was write a book that explains the basic logic of it, shows how it can be applied, some of the basic methods. And um, so, no, I don't think I've had anything really, you know, um, you know, think what, what's happened is to me is um, some of the things people, like I talk about the concept of an attractor, for example, in the book, and I've gotten feedback that tells me, you know, I need to do a better job of explaining what that is because people are not quite getting it or, um, you know, give me ideas for research, <laughs> how to understand these things. But um, I don't think to fundamentally change the ideas, no. The the constraints-led approach, I, I mentioned it earlier that you had spoken about, about changing something in the activity, the drill, the game. Um, you formalized something that, that I've been advocating for years is that if you want a child to improve in hockey at something, then you have to create an environment that cheats, that forces them to be able to do it. Uh, you've made it, you've redefined it. Um, but the challenge in hockey, of course, is that particularly with the kids who are weaker skaters, we can always get the better skaters and better players motivated because mm -hmm. they are just better. So they're more motivated. <laughs> but the younger ones five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, 10 years old who can't skate, can't handle the puck. The real challenge for coaches is to say, all right, I understand the constraints-led approach, but how do I go about doing it? So in, in what you've been doing, have you had any kind of support or even pushback from governing bodies, local associations, state-led associations that say, yeah, we can help with this? To, to ones that contact me and and you know help oh. to help get this in, um, I've definitely had a lot of so a lot of what I've been doing over the last couple of years is like coach education. So I've been invited to give a lot of 
seminars over Zoom and things like to to get these ideas across and then give out coaches specific for different sports. Okay, well, how do I go about this? And and then I've worked kind of directly with organizations to get into some of the specifics of it. Um, and um, so, yeah, there has been a, a lot of um, kind of, and I, so we kind of, as I said, a lot of what I do is just getting people to think through it and ask why. And, and then, you know, so one of the things I do for constraints that approach is I, I get, we do this thing I call the constraints matrix. So, you know, what could I manipulate? The number of players, spacing, rules, quip. And so we make a list and then we think, okay, what, what might that encourage that player to do? Right. Um, if I decrease the spacing, uh, on the, the size of the ring, then the player is just going to have to be more comfortable being physical. For example, um, if I, you know, make a, um, you know, like I said, the, my goalie example, if I make you so you can't move your limbs, you have to cut down the angle better. And so I get them to kind of, so I'm not really, and the key point about this approach is it's really, I'm not just, I'm not giving you a bunch of alternative drills to what you did before. Right. I'm giving you kind of the principles and the logic to develop new. I, the analogy sometimes they use is becoming a chef versus following recipes, right? Yes. So maybe for a long time you've been using like a small-sided game, but now I'm trying to get the theory and kind of the understanding of what that accomplishes and what it does, right? And using my chef analogy, once you understand that butter and oil are the fat, and then you know how to use them interchangeably and add for this different recipe. So, so um, yeah, so that that's kind of the, the things that I do a lot of. Um, just getting, because I, I can't replace the knowledge, the specific knowledge coaches have in their sport, for sure. Dean, you you look like you want to say something. Yes, I'm going to interject. Um, so, Rob, like I, I've I've followed you on on your podcast for a number of years, and um, I've read portions of your book. I haven't had a chance yet to read all of it. I've really enjoyed it so far. I used to work with Dr. Joan Vickers way back oh, okay. in the day, um, ironically in baseball. Okay. And uh, before, well, I've always been in hockey and soccer and other sports, but it was baseball where I first um, received some impactful experiences, both as a, as a subject and then as a, a researcher with Joan. Um, one of the things you mentioned here, uh, you know, you talked about um and I like this part where you've incorporated a lot of the um, included the academic studies within the book as, you know, for further reading, if people want to delve into whatever rabbit hole they so choose. One thing that like, I'm, I'm big on invasion games in particular and decision-making and um, game sense, you know, and I, I find the constraints led approach. It, it's been, um, foundational to my development and evolution as a coach probably over the last 20 years previous to that the 15 years were banging my head against <laughs> the traditional drill and skill structure so when you said earlier here today that there's other ways to do it that you can you can include play as part of a um, environment that's rich in context and it's it's providing those tactical cues as well as allowing room to turn left and right and to work on the skills even unconsciously without direct feedback you know the there's knowledge of results knowledge of performance based on the players interacting with their environment in a game or a competitive situation small-sided game whatever we want to call it i'm curious 
which metrics have you heard of or you've used in the past regarding um, evaluating decision-making or game sense, like, like in any sport, I guess, um, because I know you're, you're more heavily involved in baseball and the like down there. But is there any other particular studies or personal experiences that you can share about evaluating how do um, coaches who use constraints-led approach or, or people in a performance space, are there, are there any tangible benefits or ways or directions or evidence that constraints-led approach is indeed beneficial? And maybe more so than traditional approach, but in, in general, are there any results? And, and you know, what are those studies? What are those methods, techniques, or researchers? Yeah, yeah. There's there's a bunch of uh, studies. I think uh, that's that's a great question. It's a really challenging aspect of uh, of this. It, part of all of this is accepting that the athlete is a complex system that doesn't follow simple steps in their development. Just like a child, like how do you assess whether your child is at the developing at the right level? It's very complicated. You know, are they walking it? Are they doing, you know, it's all interacting. And so part of it is accepting there's not going to be a simple way to assess and measure. Um, so there's most of the studies kind of use a traditional pre-post, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some measure, some ability. The biggest gains, though, that we see in, in, where you, this really shines is, is kind of transfer conditions where we put you in different conditions you've never experienced. Like if I take you in a golf, I train you a certain way, and then I put you in a weird lie. Having this variable game-like conditions makes you kind of more adaptable and be able to problem solve and things like that. But yeah, but in terms of as a coach evaluating, no, I think like we talked about, you know, you you want to have with your constraint. What am I? Tr- what the word that we use in the in the theory is affordance. Mm-hmm. What opportunity am I trying to get my players to see? You know, whether it's moving into open space, like if you have little kids that follow the puck <laughs> everywhere, how what constraint can I add to get them to move into open space? So the first thing you want to see is, are they taking that? Like, the, are they taking the opportunity I'm trying to push them towards? And oftentimes in reality, you'll find that they don't <laughs> and you'll have to scrap your constraint. It's a very iterative kind of adaptive thing. You find, oh, oh, they just like, for example, if you wanted to make players pass more, you could put a rule. You have to pass three times before you can shoot. I've tried that in some sports and the players just pass three times at the top and then actually start playing. Like they, they find a workaround um, that really doesn't accomplish anything. So that um, also, I think it's very hard because in, there's some really good work on this in PE, for example, by a person named James Rudd. He's done, right? So instead of you know, in kids, let's measure the fundamentals. Like, let's let her, let's see if you can catch the right way, which is very convergent thinking, right? We're trying mm-hmm. to think whether you can do this one way. What he does is he, with his kids, he trains, how many different ways can you move from here to there? Mm. Right. So he's looking at divergent more solutions. How many possible ways instead of um, looking at how can you solve a problem, a movement problem? It's kind of the way. So, but yeah, it is a big challenge. But there, as I said, there's some research. Um, as I said, there's on injury risk, creativity. They've tried to assess different ways, but it is a real challenge. I recognize uh, for coaches showing that convincing people this is working because <laughs> um, sometimes it's going to look disorganized. And you know, if you t- if you tell players exactly where to be, and they're going to look 
more organized initially, right? Yeah. It's interesting that you say the, um, you know, two things that struck me with that was um, I just watched the the, the U18 uh, national championships here last night in a small town just south of Calgary in Okotoks. Um, Moncton beat Magog 5-4 in overtime. The I watched a few other games earlier. There were six teams, and um, those two teams had the best record throughout. But just watching them play, they didn't look to be overly patterned, like you talked about a power play or whatever, structured uh, set play. Yes, there was some, but... Both kid, both teams, the kids, the predominant, um, like the, the majority of the kids on each one of those teams could solve problems in action, in the moment, under pressure of timing, spacing, moving into the right areas at the right time to provide a support outlet, you know, talking about principles of play rather than you must go here and from there at this rate, at this speed, at this time. So not like chess pieces, but like a like a human, like a a, bi, a piece of biology interacting within chaos at the right time in the right place. And those two teams did it better than anybody else in the in the tournament of six teams. I don't know if it was coaching. I don't know if those kids came pre-equipped and pre-exposed to those environmental conditions. But boy, oh boy, could they make decisions under pressure? more often than not good, good decisions. And I think that's why the record was what it was and why they were there. And it went to overtime could have gone either way. I think the other comment that you made earlier about being a chef rather than following a recipe, there is a danger in constraints of saying you need to pass three times in a row before you can shoot because the kids are smart and they will find the workarounds like, um, like the anti-hack to what you said, I just mm -hmm. want to learn to play pickleball. The kids are like, I just want to shoot to try to score. And I really don't want to have to follow your rules. So I appreciate we're trying to get them to pass more. But I think coaches need to be aware of when you put constraints in, again, I go back to your question. You need to ask why. Why am I putting this constraint in if all they're going to do is gamify it and modify it in such a way that they're going to get around it. They're going to hack around it. So I think coaches need to be very careful with, with constraints. And I, I, I use them all the time, but I'm, I'm always trying to think how can they, how can they circumvent my, my, my constraint? Right. And mm -hmm. I don't know if, do you have any advice to um, coaches on, on that regard of how to be more like a chef rather than to follow the recipe? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think it's just kind of the experience using them and, and recognizing that, yeah, you're going to have to scrap some of them because they, they didn't work. And a couple other things that I, I find, you know, having a kind of a reflection period with the athletes after, you know, what what we, what did this do? What made you, what did it make you think when I am? Um, um, the, uh, and actually some of the, it's a really fun thing to do in practice to let athletes come up with their own, <laughs> especially kids. How can, how can we put a new rule in, um, just make it, those are the tend to be kind of crazy, but they're very fun. But, uh, um, so yeah, I think, you know, that's, uh, the other thing is, you know, that sometimes the constraints that approaches is, is the, 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 it gets the assumption that it means you can't do anything. It's like set it and forget it. You can step in as a coach and say, "Why don't you think of? Why don't you think about 
the other side of the ring, the ice, reversing the flow. Like you can point out, you're not, you don't want to tell them you, sh- you have to do this, but like pointing out these opportunities, giving kind of simple instructions, um, stepping in, I think is, is you need to do sometimes to kind of get them to think about it. Uh, little, little, all, little things I've learned too, like in, in soccer, when we do this, I make sure there's a, 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 a here's another, there's two really important ones. One is if we're going to add all these variability and constraints and, and things to practice, athletes are going to make more mistakes, right? If we want you to learn to pass and make decisions, you're going to make a bad pass. We have to set the expectation as a coach. That's okay. Right. We're learning. You learn when you make mistakes. Um, so, and also I will think I do little things like I have a ball ready to put back into play. If you make a really bad pass and it goes way off, I don't make you run and get it. Cause in these exploration things, I want you to try different things that maybe it'll take you a while to get good at. This is one of the issues of in coaching is the, is the, uh, impatience with kids making mistakes mm-hmm. and correcting them right away. You know, they, they, they go through a drill they do it twice, and all of a sudden, the whole group is stopped to address the three kids who didn't do the drill properly or didn't follow the route or missed a pass, and they're getting reamed out by the coach. I see it all the time. I did it myself years ago. Uh, yeah. It's very frustrating to watch, let alone to experience. Yeah, and I, f- I find the other extreme, too, you know, yet everything's perfect in practice everyone's doing everything perfect and there's no, and you're like, you know, okay, that's a good recital. When's, when are we going to learn? Right. Um, you need to push people a little bit harder. Some doesn't mean you always have to do that, but you're right. I think it's a really important thing as a coach to kind of, you have to set the expectations for sure. Do you find the coaches and organizations that you're working with are becoming more patient with the errors their athletes make in practice? Um, I think they're getting more, I find in general about staying out of it. And a lot of the coaches are not always jumping in and they're really getting working hard to, to not always be jumping in and throwing instructions down. I think some coaches are finding that really challenging. And, you know, as I said, you know, with parents watching and, and things, but um, in general, I think uh, the kind of saying less is better. I think message is getting across for sure. I have one last question. Um, if I, if I could, I, sure. so Rob, if uh, keeping in the context of an invasion, game, uh, how, what ways would you try to encourage coaches to go about teaching the ability to keep your head up, you know, so you can scan the environment rather than looking down at the implement, like the puck or your skates and, and all that. How, how do you go about trying to encourage players to play heads up? Yeah. So there's a couple, you know, um, one way, way I think I talk a little bit about in the book is there's you can actually buy these. Uh, they're called chin-up goggles. Mm-hmm. They're glasses that actually block the lower part of your visual field. So if you want to look down at the puck, you have to put your head right down. And you're not going to be able to see anything in front of you. So you're kind of forcing. So that that's a, a constraint, right, where you need to learn to get the feel of stick handling from your you know, proprioceptive and kinesthesis. Um, you, then you can just make other kind of, I've done things where I make players yell out a number or something that's up on the wall, you know, get them, um, these, these different kind of, th- you know, adding things that 
where head, have keeping your head down is not going to work. You could do it the really old school way and right have someone check them and <laughs> hit them really hard, but we probably don't want to do it that way. That was psychological safety. That's a big question. And physical. Yeah. But yeah, you, so it's the same kind of logic. You know, what can I add to practice that going to make looking down at the puck make it really difficult for you to achieve what I'm asking you to do? It um, it is it is at this point where I will throw out what I did when I was an assistant coach at Concordia University in Montreal many moons ago. And I was out there with the junior varsity team because I was the head coach of the junior varsity team. And I wanted to find out if players could score, could hit the net, just hit the net without looking down at the puck. So I, they were wearing full cages. I taped a piece of cardboard around their nose to go mm-hmm. to their ears. They could not look down at the puck. The guys thought I was completely nuts, which I probably was, but it was, there was no science behind it. Mm-hmm. I was not working on a dissertation. I just wanted to find out. It was amazing. How or product often sales. They, how mm-hmm. <laughs> it was cardboard, Dean, how yeah. often and how capable they were hitting the net without ever looking at the puck. Now, mind you, these were college players, so they were pretty good players. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, um, you know, we, yeah, we do some other thing. And Dean, you were mentioning Jones, Vickers' mm-hmm. work. You know, one of the things in baseball batting we find is critical is the batter has their eye in the right place. Yeah. When the pitcher's winding up, kind of Jones' idea of the quiet eye. A lot of novice batters are looking all over or looking. So yeah. you can tell them, okay, look there, but it doesn't. So what we do is we have kind of now we have occlusion glasses. So mm-hmm. I can block your vision when the ball's halfway <laughs> to the plate. So you really have to have your eyes in, the, you know, it kind of motivates you to get your eyes in the right place right from the start because you're not going to see it for very long. So, uh, um, yeah, kind of occluding, uh, that's another kind of constraint we play around with. But I did see the um, the YouTube video that was, um, I can't remember the pro soccer player, um, I can't remember what study it was. It was very fascinating on YouTube where the, they, they would turn the lights out at a certain time. So mm-hmm. he, they were in a studio and and he was going to strike the ball and they had a pro laying a ball in to, mm-hmm. it was like a, a famous striker and yeah. there was a net. And as he was waiting for the ball to come, they would turn the lights out earlier and earlier and earlier. Of course they had the high speed photography and, you know, and at night vision. And so they could see, and this guy was still completing, uh, you know, a one timer essentially into the soccer net and they would turn the lights out earlier and earlier. And so he was cueing. He knew as a pro what to cue on to read the trajectory of the ball before it left the foot. It was absolutely amazing, but I've seen studies like that and I've seen occlusion glasses and that sort of thing. And, you know, Joan had played around with some of that stuff with basketball as well, golf, it was quite interesting. And the transfer effect to me, that was the, the biggest mind blowing thing that I saw was the variable random practice after you take a couple of weeks off and go back and then do a post test mm-hmm. that the, um, you know, I think it, I guess it worked its way from maybe, you know, working memory into long-term memory. And, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And that goes back to kind of the, some of the challenges with this, you're kind of playing the long game, yeah. like variable practice people, get better slower <laughs> during yes. the acquisition phase. But then after in retention and transfer, they're way better. Right. Um, so it, yeah, it, it, it's kind of, yeah, for sure. Well, that speaks to coaching and patience, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, Rob, thank you, po- Rob. Yeah, Rob, your podcast, uh, the perception and action podcast, I think it was mm. your 400th episode. 
Was it the yeah, 400 mm-hmm. where you had on a number of guest speakers to talk about, uh, well, kind of a review of what, of what this whole thing was about. Mm-hmm. One of them was a judo coach. And I, yes. I don't recall his name. What was his name? That was uh, Cal, Cal Jones. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I, I don't know if this is where you go. There's also another episode where we specifically focus on using this approach in, in martial arts and MMA. I, I have to yeah. look that one up yeah. because mm-hmm. uh, after I heard that episode, um, <clears throat> I, my, my two granddaughters are eight and six years old. They're, t- they're studying jujitsu. So I went, I remember the, the night, the first lesson after I heard that podcast, I, I specifically focused on uh, the instructor, Igor, who's terrific with little kids. So they're all six to seven years old, five, six, seven years old, uh, showing them a move in jujitsu. And letting them practice it. And there were, I don't know, 18 kids. And it was varying degrees of awful. (laughs) But in some way, shape, or form, they were getting the idea. At no time, and I don't think he's heard your podcast. I will point it out to him. (laughs) At no time, though, did he go up to any pair of kids and say, you must hold your arm here. Or it was all very generalized. Stand in front of that child to do the hip throw. Mm -hmm. Put your put your arm around the kid's waist. Now try it. And of course they would flop like, you know, pillows onto the mat. And I, then I hearkened back to the episode with a judo coach saying, there are so many ways to do these throws that Mm -hmm. we shouldn't be focusing too much on specific technique in a sport where I always thought the technique was vital. Yeah. Yeah. No, they, yeah. You, you picture Bruce Lee or someone doing the same punch. A thousand times right in martial right. arts for sure it ha- if any sporting kind of has that tradition for sure but i love that i wish that would be a good what you said you described what you're saying is perfect tagline for for my book that, that, that with the ideas in my book yeah that right. there's the idea that there's not one way to do things right, right. And, and so trying to give people the one ideal way is, is flawed yeah for sure yeah martial arts the it's i have a couple episodes where people are talking about which which ways. episodes do you remember the numbers um, I could dig it up. Um, yeah, we had a kind of a round table. Act, mm-hmm. um, I can look it up right now. Okay. Um, about applying this approach to, uh, to martial arts and M- things like MMA, um, you know, which is, so it's number 369. 369. Okay. So, so listeners, table. number 369 in the perception and action podcast. Yeah, uh, so which is not to say know, that I'm at. I, I just want to make it clear I'm not okay, advocating sure. hip throws in hockey. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's. I think it applies some of the idea because also you know there's some of the same issues. Like you know one of the big things we talk about is making the practice game like, but you can't have the contact and things like you have in a martial you know, martial arts competition in practice, right? right? Same with hockey. You you know you don't always want the full body mm-hmm. contact. So how do we get around these and how do we make people prepare for, Mm -hmm. you know, so there's some of the same issues issues for sure. Well, that's a, that's a great discussion, Rob. I I very much appreciate your being on the podcast with us today. Uh, We're going to get this out to our coaches and get some discussion going on how we can improve it. Uh, My thanks to, uh, well, my co-host Dean, as always, and to Rob Gray, professor at uh, Arizona state university, where they have an NHL team, but they don't do a lot of hockey and it's too small to rank. And, uh, Rob Gray of Caledon, Ontario. Yep. Uh, thank you, Rob. Uh, best of luck with your podcast and with your book. 
Thank you guys. Thank you both. I was it was fun to talk a little hockey. I don't get Good. to do that very often. <laughs> so I appreciate it. Yeah. Gotta get you back to your roots. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, if those of you who have questions, you've been listening to uh, Grassroots the Minor Hockey Show podcast. You can email me at Richard at grassrootsminorhockey.com. And as always, I will at some point see you in a ring. And keep them coupled. Yeah. <laughs> and keep them and keep them coupled. Yes. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs>